What's up, everyone? Welcome to another episode of Desolation Radio with Dan and Nath. How are you, Nath? I'm really good. How are you, Dan? Yeah, also amazing. Yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, we've both had a great day. And a great month, I think, since we recorded this one. Mm. This is one of the ones we record, and then we sleep on it and say we're going to release it, and then, then we just don't. Yeah, partly, um, like, uh, apart from trying to build the hype for our own episode of the old podcast um, with our limited audience, my laptop also broke, so I kind of was a spanner in the works, and I got snowed in as well. And you you wanted to watch The Wire. And I, yeah, I've been watching The Wire. So I got snowed in, started watching The Wire, and then um, it thawed, and then I kept watching The Wire, and now I'm unemployed. Well, but whenever there's a time lag between episodes, it's, it's either work commitments or if we've both got a new TV series that we want to finish uh, or make a real dent in. And in this case, you know, the wire comes first. So um, I remember seeing this awesome tweet and it said, every white person's favorite series of The Wire is season two. <laughs> Why is that? Because it's the, the season that focuses on white people. Anyway. Um, All the white people in the world. So That was a good one, wasn't it? Frank Sabaka, isn't it? Yeah, it's awesome. Um, That's my favorite season. Is that your favorite <laughs> season as well? Yeah, it is. Yeah. So, all right. I like the season with the drugs. Wales this week. We're going to go straight into it. I was thinking with this, should we perhaps start uh, referring to it as what's been happening in Wales due to our uneven commitment to uh, releasing podcasts? What would that be as an acronym if we had to... What's been happening in... What, it were no w w b h i w is it yeah so if we decide to do like a, a kind of twitter hashtag thing uh, <laughs> trending yeah get a trend in so what's been happening in wales dan you're a resident welsh expert well one of the main reasons i'm desperately trying to leave wales there have been a number of sorry episodes and issues that have happened in the month since we recorded this that have really sent me into a pit of despair and as and as i said it really has i mean you're always kind of hanging on near the pit of despair isn't it yeah on the edge circling yeah. it um the the plug hole but this sent me right down like a spider mm. and it's just all the things we're going to talk about epitomize the problems of devolution they sum up you know why people are right to be skeptical about devolution why people will be hostile to devolution um, why people would want to scrap the assembly it's, I really I find it mind blowing. I find it some of the stuff that's it's so depressing. And and like I said, that's why I'm not getting any luck in these job interviews because they ask me why why do you want to work here? Mm. And I just start sort of yelling and like please please let me have a job in London. Please let me have a job in Manchester so I don't have to be in Wales. Oft, often as well, they're either conducting uh, the interview um, as you're on a ledge, standing on a ledge, and they're using a megaphone, aren't they? Come down. Yeah, we'll give you the job. Um, and they're like, not really. Not really. Um, Jump. All right. So some of the things that have happened in the last month are chronologically. So one of the things that upset me the most was David Ellis Thomas, the minister for selling out, basically said that he doesn't agree that broadcasting should be devolved to Wales. Now, anyone that's been following our podcast or you know Welsh politics in general will know that the devolution of broadcasting is something that's seen as extremely important. There's a huge information deficit in Wales. And what I mean by that is that people basically don't understand what's going on in Wales. They don't understand what the Assembly is responsible for. They don't. They get confused between what the Assembly is responsible for and what uh, Westminster is responsible for. And one of the reasons uh, it's given that people don't understand what's going on is because people don't consume Welsh media. You know, they read 
British newspapers, they watch Brit- uh, TV shows made in London that don't mention Wales at all. And the news we do you do consume from Wales con- is basically a five minute or fifteen minute roundup at the end of the proper you know British news, and and that's just not enough time to treat issues in any depth. And over the years, there have been numerous sort of culture and media committees set up by the Welsh government to you know because they they get involved in the hand wringing as much as anyone else. They say, oh yeah, this is terrible that you know people don't understand. I mean, I got an article in Open Democracy about the BBC a couple of years back, talking about the information deficit and how how little people understand or are interested in Welsh politics. And every time the reaction is the same from the political class in Wales, like, oh, this is terrible. How do we solve this? And but one of the solutions to solve the information deficit has always been you know devolved broadcasting because if broadcasting's devolved then all of a sudden you're not constrained by these the structural limitations imposed by you know london centric broadcasters all of a sudden you can start making programs about welsh life you know the, the the whole range of welsh life you know not just the valleys and you can start scrutinizing the assembly you can start having longer in-depth news programs and we know that the talent is there i mean in bbc we know in bbc wales and and ITV Wales, we know that they've got talented, intelligent broadcasters, but they, you know, they've got their hands time behind their back because of the time slots they're given. I think Dan Roberts said on Twitter, he said Wales is so depressing because nothing happens. I mean, if the same stories are talked about over and over again because the government make a lot of noise but don't do anything about it. So when I wrote my article on Open Democracy on the BBC, um, I remember reading I think the 2016 committee report on the future of the of broadcasting and media in Wales and, and all the experts, because they always bring in experts, they all said, listen, you need to devolve broadcasting now if you want to sort of deal with this information deficit. And then I read the one from like five or six years earlier, I think it was 2010, another panel of experts, the same recommendations again. So the two reports are like identical. So they identify the problem and what's to be done about it in 2010. Nothing, you know, and nothing is done about it. There was no reason why nothing was done about it. And then, you know, fast forward five years, information deficit has grown bigger. People are even less engaged and involved in Welsh politics. Oh, they commission a new report, new committee, different members, new experts, you know, make the same recommendations. Broadcasting should be devolved. And the recommendations, they're sort of, all, they're always a bit, I was going to say wanky. I can't think of a technical term, which well, there is a technical term, non, you know, non-committal. Basically, they sort of say, "Well, you know, we hear these recommendations, but uh, maybe you know, we probably won't do it." And then the other day, I think you know, some someone implied raised it in the Senate, and David Ellis Thomas, the minister for toadyism and being Bad a right, being a royalist, mm. um, he he basically pancakes. said he, he said, you know, this is a guy you know, who used to be you know the charge applied Cymru, used to be a Marxist. He said that you know he doesn't think that broadcasting should be devolved to Wales at this time. And he didn't even give a, like, a reason. And I think the polite person didn't even say, like, you know, I just said, why? Or he yelled across the chamber, like, why? Or shame. Why, you bitch? Um, and the reason that they, they give is, at the moment, the limited amount of money that is spent on broadcasting in Wales is sort of guaranteed through, like, the BBC's budget set centrally. It's, and they're worried that if broadcasting is devolved, then it goes into the Barnet formula, the block grant, and, and then the Welsh government will have to divvy up the funds and make a decision on you know who gets what so because so much of the welsh government's budget is spent on trying to ameliorate the the fallout from deindustrialization um, you know so massive health problems illiteracy as well as you know giving money to property developers and spending white out el- spending money on white elephants and basically just being inept they said well we won't you know there's a good chance that the broadcasting and media in wales get even less money 
because we'd have to make the tough decision between, you know, culture and TV on the one hand and say, you know, a new hospital on the other. But given, you know, they're the only country in the UK to cut health funding over the last like 10 years. They did it progressively though, didn't they? They do this all the time. They identify a problem and then they reject the obvious solution and they reject the means to deal with a solution. So the only thing, I mean, you don't have to be a conspiracy theorist to think that at this stage now, they just don't want to be scrutinized. You know, things are fine the way they are. What else happened? Which was, oh, right. So, You've been on the picket line of new. Oh, yeah. So I've been striking because. Um, Beating ac- up scabs. Academics are, you know, being shafted in, in our pensions. And, you know, pension sort of an abstract idea for me because I never assumed that I was going to get one. Do you, do you feel our generation will actually retire? I, I'm skeptical that we will, like. No, I probably won't. Um, just keep working until we die. Um, and it, our, our bones lay the foundation of a new world. Yeah. <laughs> but not in a cool way. No, in a bad way. Yeah. Um, so we've been on a strike. Although you wouldn't know it because, again, coverage has been absolutely pathetic. To be fair, the only people who've been covering it properly and in depth have been your student journalists from Cardiff Jomex. So really well done to those guys and Andy Williams in particular for sort of probably letting them know what's going on. But that depressed me because during the strike, you know, we're on the picket line. The pensions are a small part of the you know marketization and neoliberalization of higher education in Wales, which is something we discussed in the previous episode of Polly. And all the academics on the pick line rule are, you know, this is terrible, pensions are terrible. But what strikes me is that, so as we're moaning about this, Kirsty Williams is on TV all the time talking about the Diamond Review, which is sort of out in the open now, that Welsh students are going to be charged the second highest tuition fees in the world. So 20 years on from devolution being marketed as some way of creating this social democratic enclave, no, instead we've charged students the second highest tuition fees in the world after England. The Welsh Labour government reneged on their commitment to peg the fees at 3,000. They now, plagued it, didn't they? They're, yeah, they, they're now 9,250, which is just appalling. Okay, so that in itself is terrible. But what's worse for me is that, well, it's not what's worse, but it's, it's just as bad, is the fact that Kirsty Williams keeps saying that the Diamond Review and the situation in Wales is the most progressive and radical settlement in the whole of the UK, and not one journalist, either in BBC Wales or HD, you know HTV or or even sort of British media, has just said, "Excuse me, Kirsty Williams, can you just explain to me how charging someone nine thousand two hundred fifty pounds a year for tuition fees is more progressive than Scotland, where university is free?" No one's even got the basic inquisitive nature to just. It's just funny. It's just a, that's surely an instinctive response. How is it, okay? How is it better to charge this? And Dan Howden, one of our mates on Twitter, said this about hospital NHS hospital car parking. There's an obvious, clear, radical, popular solution to sorting out higher education in Wales, which would, you know, it would end this idea that students are consumers and it would start to roll back the new liberalisation of education. And it, and it would increase participation from working class students, which is currently terrible in Wales. Although Kirsty Williams says that, you know, actually charging students £9,000 a year is more likely to get working-class students into university. Didn't, you can square uh, that one for me. Didn't Kirsty Williams also say on the hour as well that she uh, she doesn't believe class exists? Or it should be it's something that divides us. I don't know. I'm uh, sure I agree. That... She's out of a depth, basically. I mean, but w- what was so bad about that was that, you know, I was mo- ranting about this on Twitter, the Diamond Review, the fact that, you know, she's getting away with calling something that's quite clearly regressive. She's calling it progressive. No one's challenging her. Like, not, you know, there's a complete abrogation of duty from Welsh academia, from Welsh media. It's just this matey little club, we're all in it together. And there's this assumption, oh, because it's the Diamond Review, 
because it's carried out by some expert, Professor Diamond or Lord Diamond or whatever, it's as if it's this neutral objective thing that we have to abide by. We have to abide by the recommendations of this. He's not God. Uh, it's also And it's also, you know, this idea that because it's a review, an expert review, you know, it's objective and it, it's not sort of permeated with, with power relations. It's just but what's clear is that the idea of, you know, scrap intuition fees is now seen as this is where we are in Wales. The idea of scrap intuition fees, which, you know, Jeremy Corbyn sensibly advocates, is now seen as being sort of fall off the edge of the world, left, insane. And it just shows how far to the right um, public discourse is, is in Wales, really. What else has happened? Oh, another moronic decision by the Welsh government. So a couple of years back, well, maybe it was last year, they created another pointless body, the Traffic Commissioner. Why you need a separate Traffic Commissioner, I don't know. The Traffic Commissioner basically set up, uh, after a year, it was revealed that he didn't have a building, uh, he didn't have an office in Cardiff, and he didn't have any staff. And he said at the time he didn't have any staff because he couldn't find any good, competent Welsh speakers because the Assembly and the BBC had sort of snapped them all up. So this guy's getting paid a wedge to do absolutely nothing. He's now stuck his oar in, you know, <laughs> thrown a, a bright idea into the mix and said, it's seen as a joke sort of uh, appointment. So this guy's getting paid a wedge to do absolutely nothing. He's now stuck his oar in, you know, <laughs> thrown a, a bright idea into the mix and said, one way we can stop traffic congestion in inner cities is by letting... HGVs and articulated lorries use bus lanes, you know, and you know therefore use cycle lanes. That would also um, help though with uh, um, the kind of you know crowding on buses. You could just get back on the back of like uh, you know a dumpster lorry or something. It's, um, if you if it was a normal, mature, sensible country, an idea that stupid would just be nixed straight away. No, moronic. There's so many statistics. Was it the Royal Society Prevention of Accidents? There's so many statistics that HGVs are responsible for an overwhelming majority of cyclist deaths in inner cities, even though they only make up a tiny percentage of the actual traffic on the road. Because they're dangerous to the death traps, they take up the same space as cyclists. And basically, if you're hit by a lorry, you're more likely to die than you are if being hit by a car. So it's, it's a terrible idea. But what makes it even worse is the fact that we've got the Future Generations Commissioner, a post which is, is meant to do what it says in the tin and help future generations and help, particularly meant to be focused on the environment. And, um, and obviously diverting lorries into the inner city is not something that should be encouraged at all you know it should be freight it should be on rail she's obviously said nothing we've also got the active travel act in wales in 2013 which was specifically designed to make it easier for people to cycle and walk so all these things legislation that when they sort of are instituted the welsh government will make loads of political capital off it they'll 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 trumpet how progressive they are look at our Look at what we've done in Wales. We're so radical. And apparently now the Welsh government is seriously considering this moronic, <laughs> moronic idea. And it's just, it's mind boggling. And no one says anything about it. It's like, I don't know. It's just, I find it so depressing. Um, okay, what else has happened? So, oh yeah, it's also likely, I mean, as we've, we we called it, as we always do, the EU withdrawal bill, basically this power grab that, you know, the Westminster is going to essentially start to try to claw back powers from the devolved institutions post-Brexit, so you know, there's elements of Welsh society which we don't know whether they're controlled by the EU or Westminster. You know, Westminster can say, well, thank you very much, we're having those. Scotland have basically kicked off under Nicola Sturgeon, you know, doing a job, you know, fighting for a country and saying we're not gonna happen it's not gonna happen. Carwin Jones what does he do? Get his friends. He's killed. either a hardcore unionist or a coward. I mean I think it's he, he's a fairly ardent evolutionist. So I think he's just a coward. It's just this there's there's actually a paper I started to read, and it's from Wales Government Centre, and it's about Carwin Jones's attitude towards Brexit. 
So basically, Carwin Jones is going to let this happen. Everyone's sort of been begging him, like, hey, Carwin, now, you know, you need to fight Wales's corner. You need to stand up for Wales. That's that's literally your only job. You that can redeem lit- yourself after this card sergeant thing. That's literally your only job. But instead, they've sort of analysed his speeches and things like that. And, and all the way through it, they said there's this idea of his policy as being a good unionist. So it's basically, not don't rock the boat and we'll be rewarded. You can't quite believe that it's a negotiate, negotiating strategy. It's, it's so unbelievably naive as if the better behaved you are, the more you're going to be rewarded by Westminster. I mean, I, I don't know. Anyway, so it looks as if that he's going to capitulate, as he always was going to, and Wales is going to be, you know, adversely affected. And But on the other hand, you know, all the things we've just talked about show that devolution has failed anyway, so it's time to just... Maybe he's aware of it. Yeah, I think, you know, maybe on the other hand, Carl Jones is revolutionary and he's, re- he's realised... Play the long game. Like. We're not up to it as a country. You know, our politicians aren't up to it and it's time to just call it a day and agree and accept that England's better. We're better off being controlled by Westminster than we are. That part of that nuclear um, mud being dumped was just a, you know, a really quick attempt to you know just destroy Wales, wasn't it? Just nuke Wales you now. You can't afford a nuke, so what's the best thing? Just get like the kind of waste from it. But all these stories we just talked about, seriously considering you know HGVs and cycle lanes, despite having numerous legislation, numerous acts passed to encourage cycling, you know, no one saying anything about the marketization of higher education... No, no one covering the strike, you know, being against the devolution broadcasting. Oh, yeah, and also, by the way, child poverty in Wales has now hit 30%, which is like a headline that, frankly, has just trotted out every few years. Um, and Ken Skates is just like a rabbit in the head. Like, someone said to him, like, you know, look at this. What are you going to do? And he's like, you could just, he, he hasn't got a clue. And one-partyism, unfortunately, has led to a situation where people are in positions of power who are just not up to the task. They are not capable. They are not... I'm not saying they're not intelligent people because, they, you know, a lot of them clearly are, but they're not critical... No, I thi- think you'd be safe for saying <laughs> a lot of them are stupid. They're not critical thinkers. They're not people that think outside the box. They're not people... That, everything that you do, I would do differently. I know if you come from a Marxist perspective, everything that people do seems nonsensical, but, you know, just in this... They're committed to this, you know, this neoliberal model of sort of growth. You know, they're going to be... They're not going to change their economic paradigm. They're just going to keep trying to attract you know foreign direct investment and then wondering again in 10 years oh 40 percent of children wills are in poverty it's just gonna be this it's just groundhog day mm. it's utterly depressing and i would urge all our listeners to to give up um and emigrate move to england or you know a, a better country okay we'd like to be joined by rian e jones rian writes on pop culture and politics her first book was Clampdown: pop culture wars and class and gender which is published by zero which is fantastic if you can check it out and hopefully we'll We'll discuss that at a, a later date. But today we're here to talk about her fantastic book called Petticoat Heroes, Gender, Culture and Popular Protest in the Rebecca Riots. So welcome, Rian. Hiya. Nice to be here. <laughs> yeah. Um, and thanks for coming in because it is a Saturday. Um, and it's raining. And it's raining. So, oh yeah, I should also say, you also write for The Guardian as well. So oh, legitimate, you know, these are huge credentials here. <laughs> um, uh, so, right. How, how are you falling from grace? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, basically. <laughs> All right, so uh, first, firstly, um, the pullback and reveal, what does the E stand for in Rhea E. Jones? Elizabeth. Okay. I could, could have said I took it in tribute to like Dougie Fresh or yeah. E. Smith, but no. <laughs> it was to distinguish yourself. Uh, yeah, from the, from the vastly more successful uh, journalist Rhea Jones. Didn't consider bumping her off or something like that, so you'd be the original, you'd be the it's only one? It's a thought, one. it's a thought, yeah. yeah. Everyone thinks it, don't they? Um, <laughs> okay, so why did you write this book? It started life as uh, as a thesis. I ran out of uh, ran out of funding halfway through completing it, so left with uh, it was like fifty thousand words written rather than a uh, hundred thousand words. 
yeah, so I then uh, I then turned that into a monograph. But the actual uh, my interest in it is something I've had my entire life. When I was doing history GCSE, I don't know if it, like if your experience of uh, of school was the same. There was a huge emphasis on um, a popular protest. We did a, a module that I think included Chartism, the Rebecca riots, Scotch cattle, a slightly niche um, yeah. early trade union in South Wales, and also I think no, yeah they had to put North Wales in. In the action as well, so there was some sort of or the tithe war that which yeah. everyone's obviously familiar with, um, which happened in uh, in North Wales. Um, so that was that was the first that I'd heard about the Rebecca riots, and it uh, sort of captured my interest as um, basically like one of the few success stories of, of Welsh protest. Like this, this was a, a well, the, the way I, I received it was like this was a single issue campaign against um, tolls on uh, on road travel, a local farming and labouring population. Um, took against this, uh, rose up, uh, rode out at midnight, uh, destroyed the toll gates and uh, lived happily ever after. That's the the story that we're given. Then when I came to study it in more depth, I realised that it was actually a much broader, more chaotic sort of campaign, similar to, I, I would categorise it as like an early Victorian version of, uh, of Occupy. Oh, no way. Um, so popular, yeah, popular discontent, um, finding no sort of constitutional outlet. Yes, it was a, like a a social movement, the, the type of thing that, uh, like Eric Hobsbawm has the really useful term, primitive rebels. This was like a primitive rebellion, um, basically very sort of pre-modern, quite quite odd and quite strange. So that's the the sort of, the, those cultural aspects um, are what I try to draw on in the book. Okay, so the, the Rebecca riots we just alluded to there were mm-hmm. a, basically a set of protests which were ostensibly about tolls and mm-hmm. extortionate tolls on the road, yeah. le- like levied by rich you know, Anglican or Anglicised landowners in rural West Wales yep. that were protested against by men dressed as women, hence Rebecca, right? The, yeah. Um, and that was the... So I guess that's the that's the traditional reading that's, I said, it's been romanticised by like Alexander Cordell. Mm. And is that a correct basic understanding or...? Yeah, as, as, a, as a basic understanding, yeah, that is correct. I mean, one of the things that I try and address in the book is that it wasn't... Uh, rather than being men dressed as women, it was men using... Um, sort of traditions of, of carnival and folk culture um, to present what was like a dual identity, so a sort of un- unstable, gender-fluid sort of persona, um, which enabled them to carry out sort of extraordinary acts of protest while sort of divorced from their everyday respectable roles. That's the sort of the, the tentative reading that I um, that I give it, Ra- rather than it being... Um, They'd all read Jermaine Greer. Yeah, of course. <laughs> and uh, yeah. <laughs> Judith Butler, yeah. yeah. Oh, that's the <laughs> one, yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, rather than it being like the traditional um, histories normally say, oh, oh, you know, they were just um, they were trying to disguise their identity. Well, maybe, um, but one of one of the the things you notice when you read the descriptions is how um, like impractically elaborate a lot of the the costumes were. Like this, oh, they were, were huge, huge bonnets and and hair pieces, straightening the hair. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah, and, and, and like ball gowns. And Do they wear heels? Possibly. See, what people don't understand is when rugby lads from Carmarthenshire dress up <laughs> as women on socials and go and smash up pubs and beat people up and things and those two guys you remember them there was that incident in Swansea, Swansea on yeah, one street yeah. where those <laughs> those two like cage fighters dressed as women just like decked those two other landed gentry that is yeah. a what they're doing they're channeling this rich cultural tradition of basically a, a protest so yeah absolutely and that Nicky is, Wire as well and it's sort of yeah, post yeah. superstar um, is, uh, it's all part of this <laughs> alright so we'll dig into all these issues now so explain the, the social issues at the time in West Wales you know you write there's like the toll gate says high rents, you know, there's extreme sort of rural poverty. Mm-hmm. Um, and you, you allude to this cultural division of labor, which is quite interesting. This idea that you know the landowners tended to be 
Anglican or Anglicized mm. English speakers, whereas the maybe the poor farmers tended to be not or you know Welsh yeah, speakers and things like that. Yeah, a huge sort of elite. Yeah, an, an Anglicized elite, I guess, who were um, church going rather than chapel going, English speaking rather than Welsh speaking. Um, there was off at this point as well. There's like a withdrawal of of the landed elite from their former like cultural duties. So they they previously they might have like officiated. Um, on civic occasions or like at uh, local fairs, that kind of thing. You used to christen people's um, kids, like yeah, yeah, the sort of like Lady Bountiful kind yeah. of um, archetype. But what happened um, in the early eighteen hundreds, as a result, uh, partly of the French Revolution, basically the gentry started to get a bit nervous about sort of venturing out and, and developed a deep sort of fear and, and suspicion of, of their local population. So rather than there being uh, that sort of paternalistic relationship. Yeah. Um, it became more antagonistic, and a lot of um, the Welsh gentry, in particular, started spending uh, more time in London, um, leaving their uh, like their estates in the hands of uh, sort of estate managers, gamekeepers, um, often who were brought in from England. So that sort of further reinforced that sort of like almost a colonial kind of kind of aspect. So you had that uh, social background in thirties and forties as well. It was actually a time of massive like economic depression. So there was. Um, a succession of uh, bad harvests, so that sort of that reduced the amount of uh, produce that farmers could sell. They also got less money for um, for what they were selling, so there was that. Uh, landlords, um, rather than sort of lower the rents at a time of economic depression, they put the rents up. Debt went up. Wages were um, lowered. Lowered people were um, were laid off. Um, so you had this sort of economic and, and social malaise happening in uh, in West Wales, and then on top of that, you suddenly had a group of um, yeah English uh, toll renters. Who took over the roads and put up uh, put up toll gates? So that was the final straw. It's interesting to think about the sort of the the class structure and like the composition of Wales this time, because as you've written, most of the focus is on in Welsh history at this time is on like sort of you know the growing industrialization mm-hmm. and the sort of the growth of the industrial proletariat and the conflict between like you know mine owners and, yeah, and yeah. workers and basically there was <laughs> it was bad all over, wasn't it? Just different different forms. Yeah. And West Wales is interesting <clears throat> because it's like a mix. Mm. In the anthracite coal fields, there's like the start of an industrial proletariat, isn't it, in, in emerging? Um, yeah, I mean, sort of east, yeah, the the southeastern coal field um, is that yeah actually one of the sort of like the forcing houses of, uh, of industrial capitalism, like proper like turbocharged capitalism. I think it's possibly possibly the Webbs um, who write about South Wales as um, being like one one of the most textbook examples of like uh, why capitalism is awful. Yeah. Um, it's essentially like. It, yeah, it's like like the Wild West there. Yeah, basically. So you've got that, and then just just a bit sort of a bit f- bit further towards the west, you've got yeah, again a mixed economy where you get there's like a, a small number of of coal mines and like workshops and that kind of thing, but it's mainly still a, a pre modern agricultural, basically like a feudal feudal economy there, which is where Rebecca Rebecca riots come from. What's the catalyst then? Like, what talks through like the start of the Rebecca riots and how it all. You know, what 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 kicked it all off basically? Okay, um, well, the first uh, first recorded attack on um, a toll gate was in 1839 uh, in a Failwen, which is on the uh, border of um, Carmarthenshire, and and again it's it's like a sort of um, the, the romanticised fairy tale version of it is is pretty close um, to what happened. There was a like a public meeting at night in Carmarthenshire attended by like about 400 uh, people. The historian who writes about it describes them as uh, like making off for the toll gate, um, huzzahing for free laws and free travel. Huzzah! Huzzah! <laughs> yeah, so they they all make off. Um, we should bring huzzah back, shouldn't we? <laughs> I'm sure people still use it in England, in like Oxford and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Boris probably still. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, yes, they make their way to the toll gate, huzzahing, um, set fire to it, uh, turn the uh, the toll keeper who's who's living there out of. Um, out of the booth, so they, they they are very sort of careful to like clear the arena of action before. Yes, they set fire to it, um, dismantle the gate that's across the road, take it to a river that's nearby, and chuck it in. 
Nice. So they like comprehensively de- demolish yeah, what is burn it, uh, throw it in the river. Like, yeah, what is there? Out. They're like that's that's not coming back. I've noticed that if you throw something into a water body like a lake or an ocean, that the next day you come back and it's gone. So somehow it takes it away and filters it through, and it just cleans it up like a garbage compactor or whatever. So it's not really littering, if you ask me. Of course, what happens is that the um, the gentry and uh, and the trustees uh, put the gate back up. Um, so about a week later, they go and destroy it again. They put the gate back up again. It's destroyed for a third time. Um, the third occasion is when Rebecca appears for the first time. So before that, they were doing it just as, as guys, yeah, just basically. a crowd of yeah, crowd of men. We know uh, we don't know the names of many people involved in Rebecca, but we know um, the they're all called Rebecca when they. <laughs> <laughs> the first uh, yeah, the first recorded man to play Rebecca. There's two yeah, there's two conflicting origin stories. I'll come come to the other one. Um, in a bit, um, the guy uh, called Thomas Reese, who who played Rebecca, who's apparently like like an enormous, like really solidly built um, farm and a boxer, I think as well. So he he borrowed, uh, he needed to borrow a dress to play Rebecca, and apparently the woman they could only find one woman in the locality who was sufficiently like statuesque to have uh, have a dress to fit. <laughs> Why in. do you need mine? No reason. <laughs> yeah. I was just <laughs> passing by. I live three miles out of town. <laughs> yep. Yeah, she was she was known locally as Big Becca. All oh, right. Yeah. Yeah, that's basically that's, that's the one story of how they got their name because the first one of the first leaders had borrowed Big Becca's uh, dress. So in these this like conspiratorial, you know, seditious meeting they had like the before, mm-hmm. are they all poor farmers that have got together? You know, to begin with, it's mostly yeah, it's, it's a movement of tenant farmers because they are the ones who basically who, who are most inconvenienced as a as a demographic then um, by having to travel because they are um, going back and forth to Cardiff docks to like pick up produce. There's a uh, uh, they're particularly annoyed about uh, lime. They have to, have to go and uh, go to Cardiff docks, pick up uh, lime, and cart it back to their parishes to use as fertilizer. This, this is the real like amazing spectacular stuff of history. Like, yeah, um, <laughs> yeah. So part of part of their beef is like, well, I can't I can't stop going to Cardiff docks to pick up my shipments. Suddenly, I've got to pay a toll twice. What the hell is this? Um, so because they're most affected, they are the ones that initially start demolishing. The toll gates. As the movement spreads, though, because um, that, that's in 1839. So, um, yeah, eventually, after the third attack on the toll gate, it, it failed when there's, there's a meeting of gentry, magistrates, and trustees, and they say, you know what, let's just leave it. We're not going to put the put the gate back up. So it's a, it's a very um, quick and spectacular like success story. They're annoyed with something, they destroy it. Local authorities are like, okay, fair enough. If you're going to be like that. Then uh, things go quiet for about two or three years. And then in uh, 1843, uh, when there's another sort of trough, uh, economic uh, economic depression, more attacks on Tollgate start happening. Uh, but what also happens is um, they start opposing uh, the uh, new poor law, which has come into effect at that point. Yeah, the, the movement gets, gets more diverse demographically. So you, you get uh, not only tenant farmers, but, uh, but they're laborers as well, uh, start joining with them to protest. Um, and you also get some of the mine workers who are in uh, like eastern Carmarthenshire start joining up with them as well um, to protest their own working conditions. What are the poor laws? Sounds pretty uh, punitive. Like. What were? Yeah, it was. It was basically an early, uh, an early attempt at welfare reform. And again, there's like striking parallels um, yeah. between today because what had originally happened under the uh, the old poor law was you would the local poor would basically get financial support distributed, and there'd be what was called a, a board of uh, board of guardians, board of poor law guardians. Who and it is as it's as Dickensian as it um, as it sounds. Like you you go before them and say I I'm homeless. I'm pregnant. Deserving poor type you know. thing. Yeah. So you basically had to prove that you were virtuous and you you were moral, etc. And they would they would give you some money which was contributed 
like from it was collected in the form of what were called poor rates. So it was basically a rudimentary form of redistributive taxation. What the new poor law brought in was rather than being given financial support, uh, if you asked for help, you would be sent to a workhouse, um, which I guess we probably... As in Oliver from... Yeah, exactly. Like, I guess Oliver people Twitch, are like. yeah, familiar with the sort of like the, the or, gothic horror of it. Or Ian Duncan Smith's welfare reform. Like, yeah. I was going to say, like, it's so the parallels between um, recent debates on, on welfare and again, yeah, like the respectable poor or, um, or the idle poor who, mm. you know, deserve to be, to be punished and don't deserve support, etc. Um, yeah, really striking, the sort of the neo-Victorianism of recent debates on welfare. Um, so yeah, this was uh, this was going on. And um, yeah, the new poor law and workhouses especially had become a target of like Welsh Chartism. They did a lot of uh, campaigning against it. And Rebecca Wright has also opposed it, which is something that's really um, gone into in the history. Mm. Um, but they, one of the, um, the things that like Brought, brought the Rebecca riots to public attention was um, a riot that happened in Carmarthen Workhouse, where a uh, and again it's it's a good it's a good story. There's a, a demonstration through the town by the local population, like in several thousand of them. And what they plan to do is um, march through the town, and then they end up at um, Carmarthen Guildhall, where they're going to present their concerns to the local gentry. And the concerns, like they're sort of carrying placards, etc., and they've got petitions, and they're, they're all about, like they're, they're anti-workhouse, uh, they're asking for higher wages, they're asking for sort of structural unemployment to be sorted out. Toll gates aren't, aren't really mentioned, like they're, they're sort of in there, but it's mostly a really broad, inchoate social movement reacting against this sort of economic malaise that they, uh, they find themselves in. What happens, though, is they pass uh, the town's workhouse. A portion of the march gets diverted uh, into a storm in the building, basically, and attempting to, um, yeah, t- turning out the um, the inmates that are in there and attempting to destroy it. The local authorities respond to this by reading the Riot Act and uh, sending the military in. Um, and again, it's um, like huge potential for like death and injury. There's there's not much of it. Um, there, there's a, an incredibly like snarky line in the uh, one of the local newspapers which says, uh, the military behaved with great coolness, using the flat of their swords only. Oh. Thank you. <laughs> but, yeah, and I get this is a, like against unarmed uh, men, women, and children. So, 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 so these, um, so that protest against the like the workhouses, and is that organised officially by like people behind Rebecca, or is it kind of like a more of organic? Like, yeah, local? it was a very sort of spontaneous and almost like a self-sustaining movement. Because one of the really interesting things um, about the the sort of image of uh, of Rebecca or the or the the idea of the movement is that it was very much you could, you could sort of opt in. Like if there was, um, yeah, there are even cases of women who um, like were wanted support from um, the father of, of their child or something like that. They would they would start writing letters and signing them Rebecca. Uh, so what I found interesting as well is um, Rebecca and Rebeccaism. It kind of became like a, more of a morality mob that you know mm-hmm. is, it, they were used to keeping things in check. Yeah, and things. Um, yeah, there's there's a particular. A form of, of Rebeccaism where they go to um, yeah so, so if a, a couple has a has a dispute or something and the woman re- requires sort of either like for her husband to take her back or requires financial support uh, for a child then Rebeccaites will actually go and, and try and sort that out which I, I think yeah to, to go back to the fact that the the new poor law was um, often removing um, removing support from from mothers um, so you had the community I guess sort of like organizing or sort of galvanizing to step into that breach. 
um, and provide that support. And there are, I mean, there's, there's sort of there's two there's two angles on that. One, um, it was it was good that they were taking action on behalf of mothers who um, were lacking financial support. But often it, it could be quite a, a reactionary kind of morality, like it, it was based on a sort of nuclear family and sure. um, the the man providing uh, providing financial support. Um, so there's yeah, there, there's sort of there's drawbacks and, and flaws to that, but in, in terms of popular agency acting in, in support of women, it's a it's a really interesting aspect of the movement. That's what all good revolutionary organisations always do, isn't it? You know, like the Black Panthers always mm, yeah. with with foremost a community group and like mm. they used like community drives and breakfast uh, clubs, didn't they? Yeah, and yeah, yeah. I mean the IRA did it in a more of a negative sense. They you police the police the community. In the absence of the state, yeah, so they just kill drug dealers, basically. That's, that's what, maybe uh, not a direct more. No, that's what <laughs> that's what Huey Newton did, didn't he? Um, yeah. After the kind of Black Panthers mm. disbanded a bit, he just went around killing drug dealers and beating down pimps. I just got one thing to lay on you, cats, and I'll split. That I am declaring war on anybody who sells drugs in our community. But black dynamite, I sell drugs to the community. But there's always a morality element to like you know to revolutionary organisations because it's an attempt to control and we're gonna and they, they often step in. But as you said, there's an inherent danger that they become corrupted, but with power and start like sort of mm. policing the community too vigorously. But yeah, that's a really interesting angle, isn't it? The fact they've they're filling in the void left by yeah, pretty much as as the state sort of weirdly the state both like centralises but also withdraws its support. So the yeah the community steps in. That's a, an example of this happening. And maybe it needs to happen a bit more today with. Uh, with our communities and you know the fact that homelessness problems and things like that and mm. food banks and stuff like that we should definitely arm the homeless <laughs> correct or if you yeah if you had a, had a, a beef with your your employer or something you could um you could sort of summon the uh the idea of rebecca to deal with that so it, it was at once yeah a, a movement that individuals could opt into on a very broad social movement uh, yeah not not sort of organized as we would think of like there wasn't sort of a central central committee there was no like membership system or something yeah. it was very much yeah organic and spontaneous the socialist workers party weren't there like no selling like, papers <laughs> <laughs> um that's the I, I really like that idea of you know signing signing letters like rebecca and things because there's a implicit threat to employers yeah. which um you haven't really seen in this country for well forever really which, and it works like this implicit mm. threat of of violence by an army mm. of the work, you know, a working class army or working class body is like yeah. always being like, oh shit, we better, like you know, well, what was the last group of people who did that? Bottom mine off, <laughs> uh, or something like that. Um, the second wave, then after this protest, does it sort of snowball into a sustained? You know, movement. Yeah, it becomes, uh, and again, it becomes more more diverse in terms of um, who's getting involved. Uh, it starts spreading um, outside Carmarthenshire, and uh, yeah, it ends up in uh, in Anglesey. At, oh, wow. at one point, there's there's a there's a description of um, a Rebeccaite mob um, assaulting uh, bailiffs because that was that was another target of them. If yeah, people were being evicted or having their property um, distrained, then um, yeah, Rebeccaites would often turn up and like put a stop to that. So yeah, it starts spreading. Um, it receives uh, national attention, which is interesting because they just the the London press aren't really sure what to what to make of this. Yeah. After the um, the riot at Carmarthen Workhouse, they send um, a guy called Thomas Campbell Foster, who's one of the um, like the main sources of how we know about this, and he he becomes basically like an embedded reporter. Um, he stays in Carmarthenshire, sends back really sympathetic reports on like he basically like goes goes native um he says this is um yeah it's very easy to see why these people are um distressed central yeah he specifically says central government is not helping by the sort of these centralizing theorizing tendencies um which result in things like the new poor law 
Swiss so says you have you have to have regard for um, local circumstances. Like this is um, this is quite a peculiar like mixed economy. The the society here is still basically feudal. Like you have to yeah you you can't sort of treat the entirety of the country the same. So he, yeah, his reports are very sympathetic. There's a, there's about a year of Carmarthenshire particularly, but but most of West Wales just being sort of ablaze there's like incredibly like sensationist reports coming out and like basically every day like Rebecca has has done something else people start assaulting uh, Anglican clergymen landlords employers bailiffs what a time to be alive I know <laughs> so jealous amazing like. scenes yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so after, after about a year of this the government um, send in a, a commission of inquiry so basically like some they get some like civil servants and, and dignitaries to to go down and uh, meet with the people and say, okay, what is what is your beef? What the, the report they produce is really interesting because the the minutes of evidence that they take are people saying, okay, well, you know, our beef includes like low wages, high rents, the poor law, you, you know, yeah. um, <laughs> the, the Anglican Church, um, the English language, all of these things. So the the commissioner sort of no, note all of that down, and then the report that they produce says. Oh yeah, it was. Uh, they've got beef for toll gates. Mm. Oh right, that's it. There's absolutely <laughs> nothing, uh, nothing else going on here. So yeah, the, the government produced that report. Then they respond to that by um, simplifying the system of, of tolls and lowering them slightly. And that, as far as they're concerned, that's the end of the matter. And the so the government narrative that they produce is like, oh yeah, it was all kicking off in um, in Southwest Wales. Uh, it was all about toll gates, and we've sorted that out. So nothing, uh, nothing more is done to address the actual underlying causes of this malaise so that the movement obviously continues because nothing has been done to actually sort out the root causes of their discontent what i mean what yeah what what seems to have happened from reading the historical record is that it kind of burns itself out so throughout um 1843 you get loads of stuff happening and then interesting that there's a there's more or less a split um in the movement between in the traditional histories like categorize it as like a lunatic fringe of like sort of disreputable semi-criminal elements coming in, um, and that's when uh, that's the, when the more respectable farmers, um, who are also like the more bourgeois and richer yeah. elements, um, they start turning against the movement. There's a, a yeah, there's a, a diary extract that I read from someone who um, claims to he's t- talking to a friend who is a, a very advanced radical, um, and they're talking about the Rebecca movement. And he's oh yeah, well I, I I used to think they had uh, had a point, you know, but now uh, now some now some bad fellows are, are joining up with them, c- coming from a distance in the hope of hope of plunder. Uh, and you know what? I've got a shop full of goods, so I don't approve of that. You, you said they're like proto gangsters. Some of these guys coming mm. in, and it's really interesting because if you look at any revolutionary sort of violent movement in particular, mm-hmm. there's always a tension because the longer it goes on, originals always moan. Thinking particularly of like the Irish Republican movement, there's always been a mm. an allegation that like we've started to attract people who are just like there for the for the violence, basically. Mm. They don't want to think about the politics of it. But I am actually interested, nonetheless, in the sort of gangster element, <laughs> the gangster element. Uh, so, what were they doing? I mean, were they just? Um, there's a guy, um, one again, one of the the few names that we know from the movement called uh, Shoniski Bovaur. So I don't know if you're. I'm probably pronouncing it wrongly. Sounds dodgy, doesn't he? Yeah, <laughs> sounds Polish. <laughs> come all the way. I away. come from old land, but set up. My grandfather's so Ukrainian, so I can do this shit. He has an amazing entry in, into the story where he turns up, um, like really heavily drunk in the street, Good dressed lad. in a dressed in a white nightgown. So he, so he's dressed uh, as Rebecca, uh, firing a gun through windows, like totally. In, in, <laughs> Totally he indiscriminate. Like, the point, like. That's awesome. He's not even heard of the Rebecca, right? He just didn't even know anyone else was doing it. He's yeah. like, what, what? Yeah, so he ends up in yeah in the street firing a gun indiscriminately and, and shouting, by God, I am Rebecca and I will have justice done. Class. Everyone's like, what are you 
doing? Yeah. That was years ago, man. <laughs> So yeah, he turns up. He's got like yeah, he, he basically is a he's, he's got a crew like he's he's got a gang, and they basically start doing um, like a, a sort of Rebecca like protection racket, Class. like sort of t- turn up at estates and um, and shops and like oh yeah, it would be a shame if anything uh, happened. You know. to like yeah, yeah. So they start um, yeah, basically basically extorting extorting protection, uh, which is where money. we're hoping this pod's going to go eventually, isn't it? You could tell the the proto gangsters because they were wearing tracksuits. So. <laughs> Everyone else is wearing frocks and they just turn up in like... I mean, firstly, as Nate said, what a time to be alive. It's kind of disappointing mm. that people would run out or get bored of beating up Anglican priests and, um, and yeah. the gentry and burning things down. Because, you know, I think that was like, well, let's just keep doing it forever and ever and ever. <laughs> Never get tired. <laughs> All right, so this a, a bad a bad like element come in. I think it, oh yeah the, the point I was going to I was going to make about that is that even though um yeah it's, it's traditionally characterized as like a more yeah a lunatic fringe is what David Williams um describes them as. David JV Jones uh, who wrote a, a sort of like a revisionist look at it um says that actually the the sort of semi-criminal chaotic slightly disreputable elements were there from the start because it was just part and parcel of life in um in rural Carmarthenshire like that's just how there there was always sort of criminality at the edges there was always a slight edge of violence because that was that was just part of life that's like how... living on the frontiers welcome to fucking deadwood can be combated oh. yeah well, there's no, there, i mean there is no state structure is there this time mm. is you know this it is it, as you said it's, it's not it's analogous to the wild west in mm. the sense that people you could, you could get away with things as highwaymen and things like that yeah and this this sort of like fam- family feuds going on that erupt in violence there's there's people murdering each other's flocks of sheep you know it's like it, it's a, a yeah it is a ridiculous time to be alive so yeah so the idea that when you have something as, as big and as exciting and potentially revolutionary as the rebecca movement obviously there's going to be sort of that sort of conflagration is uh revolution is not a tea party no. <laughs> was that was that mao or something or was he a tea party or something like that i don't know um okay so it, Paul, d- does it, it is, does it burn out then does it um, start to fade away it dies out and it goes yeah it, it sort of goes underground again because you get um i address some of this like in in the epilogue you then get th- there's a an actual second wave it's called the the second rebecca riots in uh, in Ryder. so it's, it's slightly distant from Carmarthenshire, and it's got again it's got nothing to do with toll gates it's actually about again this, this sounds ludicrous it's about privatizing the rivers so previously um people have been able to like fish for uh, for salmon specifically in uh in the river Y, then you get landowners enclosing it and creating like private uh, salmon reserves. So suddenly you get people again at, at midnight dressed as Rebecca, turning up, taking all the salmon. There's a brilliant newspaper report that has uh, again a meeting of, of gentry's fulminating that someone has nailed a dead salmon to the to the town hall, and it's like yeah, with Rebecca's compliments, you know, <laughs> enjoy. Oh yeah, and and a, and, a, and a sign saying where were the police when I was caught. <laughs> The host of Rebecca have uh, presented like uh, blinis with uh, some, <laughs> some delicious smoked salmon. All right, so it it, it goes underground almost, and yeah, it goes uh, off, so off the official radar, and it keeps. Does it decline as a mass? I mean, it almost from from the book, it, it's almost morphing into a, a wider social movement. But does that what what's happening at the time? Does it become a social movement? One of the most interesting things in the book, you suggest it might have been a prelude to sort of chartism. There's a link with the chartists. Well, you get, yeah, I mean, chartism was, um, yeah, the, the, the Newport Rising, like, was um, the, the same the same year as the first the first attack on a, on a toll gate. So you get, yeah, all, all these sort of intertwining strands of, of protests and, and things like the Merthyr Rising as well. So you get sort of very radical 
uh, industrial organization happening in, in the coal field as well. And there would have been um, a lot of movement between different bits of South Wales as well. Like you would get people in an agricultural depression, they might move to the coal field, work there for a year or so, and then move back. So you'd get these sort of political radicalization traveling yeah. back and forth and people, yeah, using different tactics. Like the... Um, the, the technique of using um, like threatening letters was something which um, like the Scotch cattle used to great effect, and that was in um, basically in, in the South Welsh valleys, like in the in the Iron Belt, they would like leave threatening letters for their uh, their employers um, or for scabs, and then you you also get that the Scotch cattle sort of eighteen twenties, but then you get the same techniques being used by uh, Rebeccaites as well, and they also like they say things like oh we're gonna we're gonna scotch you. So Scotch cattle is a really interesting phenomenon. And again, I wouldn't have known about it if I hadn't read like Alexander Cordell. Um, yeah, yeah. Talk us through Scotch cattle. Um, they were basically a proto-trade union, I, I would say, who sort of, yeah, arose among uh, among Welsh miners, basically to, uh, yeah, to, to police industrial action, to, to police strikes um, and lockouts, sort of, sort of enforce... Discipline. Yeah, basically enforce discipline. They use, I mean, the reason they're called the Scotch cattle is they had, uh, in, in the same way that Re- the Rebecca Rites had Rebecca as like a, a, a motif, um, they, they had a motif a which was, yeah, a theme. <laughs> this um, is theme is. <laughs> yeah, the Scotch cattle's whole thing was, uh, yeah, cattle. So the, their leader was called, uh, called the Tarot Scotch, or the, the Scotch bull. Uh, and they would dress up in uh, animal hides. It's, it's bizarre. Like, it's gets one very of wicker man doesn't it? <laughs> oh God! Oh Jesus Christ! But it brings it, yeah, but it's, it's that sort of pre pre modern, I guess, sort of almost, uh, uh, yeah, sort of folk folk culture, and yeah, like Wicker Man, oh God, oh Jesus Christ, type stuff be- becoming adapted to um, a context of industrial capitalism because like they they don't really know. Again, this yeah, this is sort of like frontier country. They don't really know how to how to become a a modern trade union. Like they don't know how to sort of have a a petition or a. I read somewhere that um, like nostalgia kind of erupts greatly within societies when they're going through mass upheaval or mass mm. change. So there's like a um, a big yearning for the past where you can you have these structures like you know like this agricultural oh, structure that you can ad- kind of adapt and try and make sense of with the new one. Mm. Like during the industrial revolution, there was like um, a big kind of uh boost in the interest in king arthur stories uh, to kind of like deal with it like you see it now with like the 80s and stuff you know it's just way making sense of the present yeah 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 but you you use those type of motifs um but you adapt them to the present to try and put them in the Mm. structure like you see it in like you know say new star wars and star trek films or like new sci-fi films they'll deal Mm. with they'll use like the same concepts but to deal with more modern day um not upheavals, but more modern day kind of uh, issues. Mm. So yeah, yeah I, mean, I think that's, that's probably exactly what they were what they were doing. Sort of a familiar using familiar techniques to um, yeah deal with an unfamiliar new new situation. I mean, both the Ragarias and the Scotch cattle are such a striking <laughs> image. I mean, you've got the image of Scotch cattle. If you if you're a scabbing miner, you know, in the middle of the night, you know, mm. you're going to open the door and there's like a, a massive gang of men dressed as cattle with these. <laughs> furs and things on them with like you know uh, burning torches mm. and then they're gonna beat you up basically mm. and um and say you know don't scab yeah. this brings us on to the symbolism of the riot and you know the theatrical mm-hmm. element and explain it <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, you know, why they why do you think they're dressed up in women as women why are they dressed like what does that mean and what's the effectiveness of it uh, what does that what does that do to the internal dynamics of the of, of the protest we should also add as well that they use blackface as well and they do they use coal or something um yeah or sort of just just like whatever was to hand sort of like 
yeah, berry, like berry juice or but something. But this isn't blackface to you know, mock black No, people. no. This is blackface. Yeah, not I was going to say. This is literal uh, camouflage. Well, to an extent, you say it's, it's, it's um, symbolism, of, isn't it? Yeah, like most, I, I think that the, the key to understanding the, the Rebecca costume then or, or symbol is that it's, um, it's about bringing together binary opposites. So sort of black, like black and white is like one binary. A masculine and feminine is another, another binary. So the fact that they use, yeah, they, they would, yeah, wear, wear feminine, uh, feminine dress and headgear, but they also, they also wore false beards, which again is, is one of the more, the more ridiculous bits of the, the historical record. Even if they had their own beard, they'd have a false beard on as well. Says a lot about the women in Kamal and <laughs> What would make us look really like the, like a woman? Yeah. A beard. Beard, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but bringing together masculine, what what was regarded as masculine signifier, and, and a signifier of like virility as well, because like, it was a particular kind of um, of masculinity, and then a particular kind of femininity. So by bringing um, both of those things together, like you you produce a sort of a, an unstable and a fluid identity, which yeah allows you to act like a like a sort of superhero kind of character, because you're, you're no longer yeah, you Joe, of... Joe Bloggs the farmer, like you you are you are Rebecca, so yeah. you can act with enhanced. Yeah, you're putting power on, you're and... putting on like a mask. You're putting on a yeah, co- yeah, exactly. This costume gives you the ability to to do mm. what you want. Yeah, you can transcend your ordinary life and do things that you wouldn't normally do. Yeah. like you know. and it's also as you said, it's uncomfortable. It's that you know disrupting those like binary boundaries mm. and things is maybe that's a necessary part of the social protest because it's mm. it's changing things it's yeah i mean there's a huge i can't quite remember who writes about this it might be uh Bakhtin, but the, sort of the, the idea of both carnival and protest as being um what's called a liminal space mm. so a sort of a, a space that opens up in in everyday life where you can do extraordinary things yeah one of which might might be sort of the potential for for revolutionary change and we, the, the idea of like yeah a lot, a lot of um sort of carnival and, and folk tradition references um the idea of the world turned upside down so that whole, um, yeah, the the idea that everything, I think it draw, draws on uh, on the Bible as well. Like so, the idea of reversing rich and poor, like reversing the entire scheme. So so the the idea of reversing male and female or bringing together male and female might have been part of how they, yeah, how how they they rendered protest a liminal space, a space for extraordinary acts. That's really interesting because you, you've made the links between the, the parallels between like Rebecca and modern forms of direct action like mm. you know, Occupy and Indignados and things like that. And mm. I was reading the David Graeber book about Occupy recently and one of the interesting things about that is that he, he, doesn't, he doesn't call it the liminal space, but he, he does make this link between the carnival forms of protest that happened during like the G20s and Occupy with people, yeah, yeah. anarchists mainly using, you know, massive floats, uh, massive sort of blow up dolls. Oh, of, the puppets. Yeah, the pu- yeah, yeah, massive yeah. puppets and also people, they, they just like dressing up as clowns and like really weird but also sort of playful forms of protest mm. that he said, he argues they were effective because like the police didn't know what to do because it's like they mm. traditionally expect black block and people smashing things up but then you've got people basically acting like a circus, like a carnival and it was just really unsettling for people but it's also like as you said it's just really it was almost the, the form of the protest mm. is the important thing almost yeah and i think that's probably that's part of what they were drawing on as well i think to, to make it a sort of like a, like a playful carnivalesque sort of space i think that's also why um like we tend in in wales at least we tend to remember the rebecca writers more positively as well because they have got this this slightly pantomime playful kind of aspect but like the scotch cattle i mean i that's like it, sinister. Yeah, in terms of like industrial <laughs> organisation, they were great, but I mean, they were grim, re- really, yeah. like, and, and the, the sort of hyper masculinity and that sort of. Like, oh, Can you imagine oh. as well opening your door like a dark night, see, like <laughs> loads of people like wearing cow like hides, yeah, just yeah. you know, that'd be awesome. <laughs> 
you said that despite this is predominantly led by men, women did play a massive role in the Rebecca riots. And that's something yeah. that's super important when thinking about Welsh history. Oh, definitely. I mean, yeah, women get eluded from Welsh history a lot. I, I think because a lot of it focuses on industrial organisation and that by necessity that focuses around industrial workers and, and miners. And yeah, after after the early 1800s, women uh, could no longer work in mines. So the the idea of protest or social movements moving from the community, which was what was part of Rebecca as well. Like it was all about sort of you, you would organise in in the marketplace or like on the hillside or something. Um, when that changes and you start organizing in um, in the industrial workplace, then that of necessity excludes women. Um, but yeah, they were a huge part of, of the Rebecca riots, even though I think in, ter- in terms of just like physical labor, it required men to actually like dismantle a, a toll booth or a toll gate. So that's um, that's why the protests were led by men. Um, but women would turn out like in, in support, basically, and in, in solidarity. So there was no, it, it wasn't a a male exclusive movement in a way that something like the Scotch cattle was, uh, which was male exclusive. Yeah, it basically involved the whole community and it was community based. So everyone who was a part of the local community could get involved. And you said, for example, when they marched in the workhouse or the poor house, whatever it was in Carlinshire, mm-hmm. women were there like rioting with them. And Yeah, yeah. Um, there's a particular, yeah, again, like. Woman dancing on the table or something. Yeah, like Franz Evans, who's <laughs> one, one of the few names that we know. And she's been, I think she's, she's actually in the workhouse. So they sort of, they break in and she's like, oh, amazing. Yeah, and dancing. So, yeah, really, really slow shift, like, oh, <laughs> looking at the clock. Like, yes! <laughs> yeah, so women are, are very much, yeah, very much part of it. You said she's urging them on or something. like. Yeah, she's, because um, they're all, yeah, so they, they're in on the ground floor and there's an upper floor where, like, the local authorities and, and the workhouse staff are all sort of uh, sequestered and she's like yeah go on upstairs <laughs> quality that's why yeah that's what she gets uh, she gets put on trial in, interestingly in her trial they call her um a daughter of rebecca so in the same way as they, they would describe a man as as being a rebeccaite or, or one of rebecca's daughters they also describe a woman in the same way so that is fascinating do we know anything about the internal dynamics of how it was organized it was mostly like, like public meetings is was the main form of yeah, okay. um, of organization and Yes, yeah, so you have like mass meetings on usually on like the hillside around um Carmarthenshire, which again might might be like sort of liminal space, like this was before it had though there was loads of like enclosure and privatization at the time, the hillsides were still regarded as like common communal space. So yeah, there'd be meetings at which people would just raise all their all their grievances and then decide on a course of action. I mean I'm I'm asking this because both Nathan and I are very interested in anarchism. We are gonna mm. do a, a rep on anarchism soon. And at the moment I'm teaching a course in Bath about direct action but also the link between direct action like within anarchist thinking and mm. direct democracy and this idea that you've just you've been talking about that the content of the protest and how it's ordered is as important as the protest you know itself yeah. and this idea that you can't really affect social change if your movement is like authoritarian hierarchical and mm. and the idea the fact that they had like these mass public meetings and in as you said like on the hillside and stuff like that is quite mm. interesting because it does seem to be more of like this almost like a relatively democratic and but and also it's fascinating because this is a time before everything gets co-opted mm. by political parties and channeled into mm. parliamentarism and that's an important thing to think about in terms of the the legacy and how radical wales is or wales is thought of this is a i mean this is a radical time you said it's, and it, mm, cause it's yeah, kicking yeah. off everywhere it's kicking off in newport you know the, the chartists are a huge hugely yep. important part of welsh history that isn't i don't think it's talked about that much like considering mm. as you said it was the last the last armed rebellion, really. Yeah, a, pr- a proper attempt at insurrection. Like the, um, yeah, it was actually. I was um, there was a commem- commemoration of Newport at the end of the end of last year. I can't remember what anniversary it was because I'm bad with numbers. But like, yeah, I, I went along there, and the um, yeah, the idea of how radical it was was really um, was really stressed. And and the fact that um, like had had they succeeded, like had they succeeded in in 
taking Newport. Then they were going to they're sort of, they're going to send up flares, and then that would be a signal to like a group in group in Bristol to mm. to sort of take up arms there. And it, it yeah, it was planned to be um, a national insurrection of the working classes. I mean that that's huge. Yeah. So it's just for people who don't know, but I mean, what were the aims of Chartism, and what were the it was about suffrage um, as well, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, but it, it was the first change. yeah first sort of popular movement for popular democracy, basically. And yeah, a huge amount of it was like okay, let's start by getting the vote, um, including for women. Like so, it's sort of. Almost, almost a hundred years before um, yeah. the, the suffrage campaign, like the Chartists initially said, yeah, votes for everyone, men and women. And they literally taken up arms like rifles and marched on Newport. And as you said, it is an armed, it's, there's no other way of putting it, it's an armed interaction. Yeah. Um, and they get shot, they get put down, don't they? Um, mm-hmm. And they like, was it John Frost and all that gets sent to, didn't they get sent to Australia? To, yeah, t- or t- Tasmania, Tasmania, I think. I think so, like yeah, they get holiday, transported. Like, yeah. <laughs> they were also, and again, to, to sort of show how, how radical it was and how, how important it was, they actually, John Frost, Zephaniah Williams and uh, William Jones, who were, who were the local leaders, initially they were sentenced to be um, hung, drawn and quartered. They were the la- last men in Britain to be sentenced to that. And then their death sentence was commuted to transportation for life. So, I'd like, be they, they I'd really, be loving that, like, yeah. really took it seriously. Yeah, because yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's such a massive symbolic. But I can't help thinking about the, you know, the epoch, the fact, as you said, at the same time, you've also got the Murtha rising. You know, mm-hmm. you know, Dick Penderen did actually get hanged, you mm-hmm. know, for stabbing a soldier in the leg. And, and so it's everywhere, and, and it's everywhere in Wales, isn't it? Mm. You've actually, you know, you've got this radical tradition. And I can't help thinking, I mean, my own personal take on this is that this is like real direct action. This is radicalism before the onset of parliamentarism and yeah, yeah. Uh, and this obsession with like doing everything constitutionally and stuff and yeah it's not like uh you know organizing the space you can like vent your frustration out or with walking mm. with some signs it's just like now we're actually going to take and over. it's also yeah, yeah and it's also not waiting for it's also not you know the party isn't gonna you know do everything for me and, and the mm. people are just basically taking pure direct action they're like well we're going to solve this and mm. they often use violence and that's the huge the huge split in chartism as well is between like the physical force and moral force so like the the physical force tradition would have been something like newport and it's, it's yeah mostly rooted in in the industrial proletariat whereas the uh the moral force is more uh, middle class reformers who, who are still chartists but who are saying well no we need to do this constitutionally we need to you know present our present our cause to parliament and they'll they'll sort it out uh, democratically yeah. we'll have a vote so, and then they'll you know they'll appreciate the vote and change it yeah but this is it but, but as you said this is it's so alien to us at the moment because the way we think of radicalism the way we think of protests and stuff is is often to do with like voting and mm. or marches and stuff like that but this is the end almost in wales of this tradition of of direct violent action isn't it mm. so, um, because we do think of, we do think of wales it's often like if you teach in a history class Wales is often contrasted with Ireland. Like, you know, Ireland's mm. always had a physical force tradition of just, you know, attacking the state, killing people. But it did exist in Wales. Um, oh, yeah. I mean, but- it's actually a huge thing with, with the government inquiry into it. They start, cause, yeah, because obviously there's unrest in Ireland at the, the same time and people start contrasting what was done in Wales, which is, is the slightly slightly fake narrative of, oh, it was all about Tollgates. We went in and sorted that out. Um, and you get people in Parliament saying like, well, you know, what's what's your problem? You can sort Ireland out like we sorted Wales out. And this, yeah, this idea that Wales is now a sort of placid, quiescent sort of good good colony in uh, in contrast to, to Ireland really takes hold, even though Wales has been, you know, at least as, as turbulent and yeah. as, uh, as threatening to the, to the British state. It's important, isn't it? Because this era is almost lost, isn't it? There's such a focus on almost the far more recent industrial past that this more radical time is all i don't know it's just it's it's frustrating that it's mm. it has been so it's so submerged i mean as just the as well as the fact as you say that you know the role of women in welsh history has been mm. sort of forgotten and it's really important this is sort of brought back well in fact I, I actually it was interesting you said you discussed it in school you must have had the best teacher ever because 
I just did Nazi Germany for from year seven. <laughs> oh, we did, year did a 15. bit of that as well. But yeah, we had. I don't. It, it might have been. Maybe there was some sort of like I don't know entryist conspiracy in the uh, Welsh uh, Welsh Joint Education Committee in the, <laughs> the mid nineties. Because yeah, there was this amazing. Yeah, so call it people in protest or something. Mm. This module, and I was like, oh, yeah, you know, awesome, this yeah. is this is great. This is what I want to study. This is about you know my own history. This is this is about individual uh, individual empowerment and collective organisation. This this is all all stuff I'm really interested in from my own yeah my own, my own political experience. But in um, terms of thinking about heritage and how our heritage <laughs> is celebrated, mm. it it does generally just seem to it's either you know ancient history, castles, you know, kings, queens, mm-hmm. or the Industrial Revolution, and, mm. and that's it. And this in-between, well, it's not in-between, this earlier era of radicalism, mm. like, you know, we talked about the fact that Newport Council tore down the Chartist mural, which is something that I generally think would only happen in Wales, like mm. this amazing yeah. sort of tiled mural for the Chartists in Newport just torn down in the face of massive local protests. It's like, well, we're doing it, you know, we'll build something shiny in there. It's missing, isn't it? I think it's missing from our na- collective national consciousness in Wales. Yeah, I, I think I think of, like a, it's missing from the, the official narrative. I yeah. totally agree because it is it's kind of there. I think it is there in popular memory. Like certainly where I grew up, we had a, a certain like maybe a folk memory or whatever of um, of things like Chartism and of the Merthyr Rising. And there, there's actually a Chartist mural um, and it's, it's sort of in disrepair now, but in uh, the local park in Tredegar, there's a Chartist mural there as well. So that idea... Um, and even, I mean, like pub, the a pub called uh, the Dick Penderian or something. Oh, you yeah, know? Yeah. So it's that sort of, it's kind of there in popular commemoration or local memory, but not, um, yeah, it's missing from the official narrative totally, which is much more about, yeah, Wales being placid and quiet. Yeah, we were saying this before in a sense that, you know, in Cardiff, you just really want like the idea that you have like statues to these people to mm. give it a, a big national consciousness. Because we were saying before about... Um, you know, all the Welsh people who went to fight with the International Brigade mm. and said, oh, that should be celebrated. And then it turned out there is something, isn't there? But like, it's just so not hidden away, but like, yeah, it's just a little tucked plinth, away. plinth in the garden could taste park. Like, yeah. But, you know, the but the Rebecca writers are speaking Welsh though, right? You know, these, it's, a Welsh, yeah. it's a Welsh speaking movement. And that's one of the interesting things about this is that I think there's always been a false dichotomy within Welsh history. And I mean, my, I always blame Dice Smith for it, but this, but there's this idea that, you know, the Welsh speaking part of Wales is this sort of like, you know, traditional, non-radical, non-conformist, or even he equates it with this like bourgeois element, mm. whereas you've got the English-speaking sort of proletariat that were radical. But then Rebecca riots, you know, and later Tlatli riots, and but also like the the lockouts in, in the North Wales uh, slate quarrying industry and mm. things like that, which were really early harbingers of you know the mass industrial unrest that we saw later in the South Wales coalfield. This is all Welsh. These are all Welsh mm. speakers. It, I think one of the most interesting things about your book and also the period is it shows that there's no, there isn't this like it moves beyond this false dichotomy of yeah definitely of a Welsh speaking you know reactionary Welsh speaking sort of conservative class and this radical you know anglicised sort of proletariat. Yeah, and I, I mean it's just yeah it comes down to your, your material position I guess like in um, in South Wales the the proletariat was. Yeah, primarily English speaking. There was a lot of English um, immigrant, also Irish mm. like immigration and Spanish and Italian as as time wore on. So you ha- you had that sort of multi ethnic kind of proletariat, uh, which which again often gets forgotten about because people now sort of look at South Wales, categorise it as oh the white working class. Yeah, so, well, yeah there's there's slightly more nuance than that. Um, but yeah, in somewhere like Carmarthenshire, the the lowest rungs of society yeah happen to be Welsh speaking. So it's um, yeah, it's a, a a false dichotomy. I agree. And what parallels would you draw then? I mean, you said you started thinking about Rebecca when you were starting to think about modern protest movements like Occupy, and but also maybe the London riots and yeah, and it was round about 
yeah, I, I think so. 2011, 2012 was when I started thinking about t- turning what I what I had into a book, and it seemed a really obvious comparison to draw with things like the Arab Spring and occupying movement of the squares, and, and particularly it, it was the use of the use of masking and and disguise, like sort of the the Guy Fawkes thing, which started. I mean, it's sort of uh, like V for Vendetta was where it, where it originally started. So it's already odd to see something that is like part of a maybe not popular culture, but sort of sort of a, a subculture mm-hmm. then emerging in political action um and and then how that that then spread from yeah from anonymous using it online to people in occupy using it as well and and it also like it turns up in some of some of the arab spring protests as well i think it's maybe tunisia um actually uh, bans the mask from being uh, imported because like i know it's a, it's a symbol of revolution we can't uh, we can't have it here it's subversive like, so, so the idea that that symbols have that that much power or costumes have that much power um is something that was to me, was sort of was common with with Rebecca as well, and how that was um, perceived. Well, that's the, the anonymous mask. It is unsettling, and when people there was mm. all these things at the time with hundreds of people wearing a mask. It's like it is eerie. Is that really? Yeah, yeah. Also, things like uh, and again to sort of maybe touch on organisation again. The fact that um, both Rebeccaism and things like Occupy were, were largely sort of semi spontaneous, leaderless, generally anonymous. Like there's no um, you couldn't point to like a, a leader of Occupy or something. You could point to maybe sort of figures that. That cropped up, but largely it was yeah a mass anonymous social movement. I think this leads us really nicely into our next episode: anarchism, doesn't it? It does. Yeah. Non-hierarchical forms of organisation. It's so important that we understand this because the legacy of doing politics in Wales, I think, is almost like status now, isn't it? It's like it's yeah, yeah. It's the Labour Party. It's um, a belief in basically reforming the welfare state mm. um, and a belief in the welfare state and the mm. state as like this sort of maybe a benevolent. Uh, oh, you know, let's just take it back to 1945, which was fantastic. Um, yeah. But this is another, it's it's almost a, di- it's a completely different time. It's uh, And it's a different form of doing politics. Okay. Well, thanks so much for coming on because I think it's, oh, no a, it's, 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 a really, it's a really important book. It's published by University of Wales Press. You can buy it in all good bookshops. Or good bookshops, yeah. Um, bad bookshops. Yeah, bad bookshops <laughs> as well. As is our custom, is there anyone you'd like to give a shout out to? Or in fact, anyone you'd like to create a beef with, you know, our... <laughs> Or both? Yeah, I might. I'm actually put the rules in now. That you have to do both. Yeah, you have to. just give a shout out and start some shit with someone. Okay, it could um, be the same person. I'll g- give a shout out to uh, to my sister because she's great. Yeah. Um, who am I going to start beef with? I live in Harringay, and I'm massively pleased that the um, Harringay development vehicle appears to be dead. Fantastic. Let's find another way of uh, regenerating uh, the area and creating some material improvement because no one is saying that that doesn't need to be done. We just have beef with how it's uh, going to be done. Such an amazing issue that was. And one of the interesting narratives emerged from the Harangay was like Claire Coe was so hard work. And that's all I kept saying, like hard works hard, works hard. It's like, well, yeah, for property developers. Like, um, <laughs> exactly. um, but also the idea of like there is no alternative. It's like this, this the way they Blairites sort of capture urgency and time. Like we need to do this because there's, you know, this is the only way of redeveloping the area. This like... Yeah, I mean, two points on on that. Like, people have put forward, c- c- yeah, because the the response was always, oh well, you know, the, these people just want nothing to be done. They want they want the the borough to be left to to rot. No, people have put forward various alternative ideas, including like um, you know David Lammy, the MP, who is you know basically a Blair, right? Yeah, he's, um, not, he's really not a radical. Left, left one, yeah. yeah, he put forward like a a different proposal for like a wholly um, like council owned development vehicle. So so there's that point. People are putting forward alternatives, and also you know it's valid to criticise something, even if you don't have an alternative. Like, yeah, you can exactly. still say it's a bad idea. Yeah, well, but so. that, that's something you've seen. We've seen Cardiff all the time when you, we moan about gentrification and the fact like we're in the bay at the moment, the way the bay has just been 
just weird housing developments and these, these amazing historical buildings being like ripped down and mm. changed into horrible tacky hotels and things. The response was, oh, well, what would you do? This is the only way of doing it, basically. And mm. this is, there's this, the way they, gra- they, they stress urgency, like Hugh Thomas and the Cardiff Council, they say, well, what would you have done to the code exchange? You know, this is the only way of securing investment. Mm. And it's not, it's a lie. Um, yeah, yeah. And as you said, firstly, you can protest against something without having a... Yeah, you don't uh, have to have an alternative. <laughs> something can be bad, yeah. you, know, you know, without having an alternative. But also people always said, like, you could have turned the coal exchange into community hub. You could have used it to, you know, basically support the Butte Town community. But now it's a horrible stag and Hindu hotel. Mm. But yeah, okay, it's a very, very good shout out and a very good beef, I think. <laughs> Nathan, what um, I don't know, I think, yeah. <laughs> we'll just do it after when we all right we'll do yeah. it another time yeah um okay rianti jones thank you so much for coming on and hopefully you'll come on soon yeah delighted thank you very much right, cool thanks rian rian is awesome uh right thank you all for listening again uh nathan any shout outs yeah so as uh some of you are probably aware that we've released a line of t-shirts lately so we thought you know we'd we kind of grow the podcast and slowly move into fashion where, where yeah. we might be able to actually make some money just want to monetize everything pretty much and you know obviously with like um child slave labor the yeah. overheads are really really low they've made great great advances in sort of production process of the years well, this they? is small hands yeah. just really nimble their eyesight's really good you Class. Know? yeah so Shout out to all our Indonesian sweatshop workers. <laughs> so, um, so, and a very special thank you to, or shout out even to everyone who ordered one. So, I just, but don't read out their sizes. Don't. I won't. <laughs> we we have a lot of hench people as well. So, right. So, um, Amy Davis, first one to order one. Thanks so much. We got Quinn Thomas, uh, Aaron Thomas, Stephen Dyer, Lee DeHalle. I think that's how you say your name. I don't know, but thanks for buying a t-shirt. Uh, Joseph Wilson, Leah Fee. Jack Crawford, who I can confirm is a handsome dude. Um, so, yeah, uh, because I saw him like you post stuff or like likes posts on Facebook. And oh, looks, is he? Yeah, he looks like kind of classically action star handsome. You know, as as does everyone who's ordered. Oh, but Jack especially. Seriously, like you could just put him in like a kind of <laughs> adventure outfit and he just suit it. I even wrote handsome Jack on the uh, <laughs> on the parcel. <laughs> so, uh, who else? Uh, no, that's not to say that everyone else isn't you know beautiful. You are, but I thought. Just Jesus Christ, Jack! Is that the guy you've you've got the printout of on your desk? No, no, that's um, that's that, that's me from a different time. Okay. Yeah, just so Nick Carter, John Fraser, Fraser Williams, oh Owen Harris, Hayden King, Di Moon, um, our bye friend Di Moon, Michelle Davis, Matthew Davis, Gwyn Williams, William Sinney, I think it is. I will point out as well that uh, one of uh, if I can find it again, Stephen, who I mentioned earlier, he bought. Uh, his from Georgia, United States. Oh, no way. Yeah, Amazing. so enjoy a can of peaches on us. Yeah, thanks, man. And there's someone else as well who bought one from LA. Um, Scampi, was it? No, it's Paul Compata. Is that oh. Scampi? No. Oh, okay. So, yeah, Tim Evans, our brother. Your, yeah, hold on, Tim, boy. Your biological brother. Yeah. My spiritual brother. Um, Alid James, Russell Todd. Who's, Russell, boy. Uh, my sister bought one because she feels sorry for me. Uh, Alid Griffiths, Hugh Jones, Joseph Mags, Anna Saunders, Reese Mills, Aaron Jones, and Tristan Ballard. So they're all looking fresh. Uh, also, who else? Um, I bought one just so we had one sale. Oliver, who designed the oh, thing. Top man. Yeah, top man. You got one. Calvin got one. Uh, Polly, uh, our other member. Mark, uh, Uncle Mark got one. Uh, Aditya Chakrabarti. Nice who, one. who we will say now that if uh, you don't come on the podcast soon, you're going to have to send that back. 
and uh, Michael Sheen, who was same thing, pretty same, much same well, threat. He was uh, he he was lamenting about how he doesn't have anything nice to wear on um, you know red carpet events. Yeah. So we sent him one, and he was saying he promised he'd wear it in a news films, even if it's a, a period piece. A t-shirt look. over tuxedo is a is a classic classic Hollywood look. It is it's a yeah. power power move. Yeah, real so, players know this. So thanks to everyone, and there's only four left at this time of recording. Possibly none now. So uh, thanks everyone. What happened really is as well it. on the website, I couldn't say that you can't buy this anymore. So the ones that have run out, I've put as like a ridiculous price. So it's a hundred thousand pounds each. All right, okay. Yeah. So I will say, if you do have a hundred case pair and you do buy one, you won't receive one because they're all out. Okay. Yeah. Uh, what showers do you have, Dan? Oh, well, I have showers to comrades on the picket lines in Cardiff because I feel a bit bad not going up um, and manning them, and they've been out rain, wind, and shine. So especially Hugh and Andy Williams. Um, Andy Williams has been a legend, sort of at Cardiff UCU and hopefully Andy will come on the podcast soon so thank you all for sort of staying strong and beef my beef is firstly to the UCU hierarchy for just being absolute spineless lizards and capitulating in a, when we had a pretty strong sort of negotiating position but you know to my students and people I always talk about you know that's why you need to read Malatesta and you need to understand anarchism and that's why traditional unions will always let you down because the hierarchy are never as radical or as committed as the rank and file. So, oh yeah, any other any beefs? Oh. Uh, yeah, I was going to have a quick beef about the abstract. I, I was going to beef picnics. And also beefing with people who haven't uh, bought a t-shirt. Um, oh yeah, um, but another big beef that we've noticed lately, although I don't really bother with Twitter that much because it's just uh, kind of an echo chamber head, of it? insanity. Yeah, with all the um, Brexit people who are... <laughs> FPFEs or WATON, we are the opposition now. Is that what it is? We are. Yeah, I, I googled it, but I mean, in terms of like you know, you just, to the point, you just defend this institution and you know start to wrap your at least online identity with it, and possibly not clueless with what its function is or its history. So, uh, yeah, it's it's getting a bit cult like, um, and if you get to the stage where you're positively retweeting or endorsing anything, John Major. Um, says, you know, he's come out against Brexit doesn't mean you can rehabilitate him. Uh, if you're retweeting, you know, r- rabid right-wing figures, um, just don't. Just have a word with yourself and just start reading what the, the EU is about. But, you know, it's you know, I think that the country's coming together uh, <laughs> as Prince Harry and Meghan Markle's visit to Cardiff showed. Yeah. You know, we're all getting behind the Brexit process. You know, Brexit does mean Brexit. God save the Queen. Yeah, God save the Queen. And uh, See you next time. Yeah, and looking forward to the uh, rebirth of the British Empire. Yeah. Yeah, and more slavery. All right, thanks so much. (laughs) Bye. Bye. Slaves built the pyramids. Slaves built the Parthenon. Slaves built America. Slaves, this is your song. Thank you. Slaves. Thank you. Slaves. Slaves! Slaves! This is your song, thank you. Slaves.